0: Time to take this submarine back up. Huh? But it's tax season up there, Captain. You know, all that stressing over taxes isn't necessary with Tax Act.
1: How did you get
0: April here? To remind you that with Tax Act, you're guaranteed your maximum refund while filing for less. Beats being submerged for another month. May hey, Captain? To your stations. We're headed home. Guess I should probably close that window I opened. What? Kidding. Switch to Tax Act today and start for free.
1: See Taxact.com for details. Hi everybody! Welcome to episode seventy-one of Get Out of Wrap, the podcast all about contact center chat and everything around that. Today, I'm very lucky to be joined by Jimmy Hosang, the CEO of the Modular Analytics company. And just before I hit record, we were talking about how you get drawn to to people from how they kind of portray themselves um, through the medium more often than not of uh, LinkedIn. And I just like how you bring per- Jimmy always brings personality. The modular analytics company kind of follow that, I think, or I don't know. We'll get into that, but just a fresh, new, relatable kind of approach. So I'm really pleased to welcome you, Jimmy. Thanks very much for coming on. Thanks for having me. We were comparing t-shirts as well, so let's get let's get your uh, your t-shirt in as well. This is full shot,
0: like this. Love it. There you go. So yeah, so these are the the top uh, hip hop albums from 1996. Um, but it's always a good talking point as I go through uh, the uh, the hipster the hipster side of Manchester. <laughs> 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 People who look like that. What about yours? Uh,
1: this is from a um, willing to fail. It's a it's a a t shirt brand set up by ex special forces who are now into uh, mixed martial arts. So. Um, but their, their message is all, you know, it's about mentality. That's what I love about mixed martial arts. It's um, if you compare yourself, even though you're up against other people, if you compare yourself to others, you'll become bitter. But if you compete with yourself, you'll become better. And it's that kind of um, mentality displayed in T-shirts. So willing to fail is another one. Um, someone I saw the other day who knows I'm a Tottenham fan said that's very apt.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just like, yeah, years of pain and suffering. Yeah, very willing. I think some of that is a little bit of backward reasoning. The <laughs> like, like yeah. positive out of a negative. Um, but you,
1: you would not be, I guess, what most people would, in their mind's eye, think about a, a CEO. Is that is it important for you to kind of just be yourself? And would you wear this pre-lockdown? Is there anything that you've done differently?
0: It's funny, actually. Um, yeah, it is, it is interesting. I've been on a little bit of a strange journey with it, just as well, like a strange journey with the role, a strange journey like grappling with what like what a CEO should be and, and shouldn't be and things like that. Um, you know, the the clamber and, and then kind of the balance between like being authentic and um and you know being a representation of who I am, who, like my company and all mm. of the people around me. And, and it is always like a little bit of a challenge with that. Um, like for me personally, like I I got brought up by, and I got brought up through like manage, management with a lot of people who were kind of uh, showing me some of the standards that you had to, that you had to do. And I always remember you know I've I've, I've been very fortunate I've been afforded like some great opportunities with people but I think at the beginning of your career it's about um portraying portraying a role and like being that role so I always remember working for Vodafone in a shop and being like a really really good salesperson and like doing really well but um but uh, I'd come in on a Saturday, stinking of alcohol, and even though I'd smashed my sales target, my boss was like, "That's not good enough. Like, mm-hmm. you need to, you need to be better than that." It's okay, like, it's okay that you hit your sales target, but you need to be better. And I sort of took that away, um, and then um, I'll always. Re- but then, at the flip side of that, I always remember working in bars and restaurants and, uh, and dancing on a table while I was working, and so <laughs> while I was dancing on the table. And seeing like everybody like in a packed pub when there was a band playing like react to that, um, and seeing how you can kind of lift people as well, being like just just kind of being yourself. And I think you're always maintaining that balance between um, between like you know being a representative of of, of your best self, um, but then also being authentic. And so I think the t-shirt thing is funny because um, I think I think I've, I've started to now. Um, one, one reads the other. Once you start to see like a certain amount of success and I'm by no means successful, like people kind of let you off for all of your bad traits, like being a bit, <laughs> yeah. struck, like having a bit of a rubbish beard, like the, the almost backward engineer go, oh yeah, well, he's the CEO, so he can do that kind of thing. Whereas I still think there's certain amounts of standards that you have to set.
1: It's a, it's a really interesting one, isn't it? Because it's the kind of, for me, it's that you're right, that the, you, the more you progress, the more freedom you have, and the more it's kind of maybe badged as "that's who he is," and that is is if he's eccentric or whatever. Whereas earlier on, it's more about conformity. And um, but I wonder if the this pandemic has made us blur the lines between home and work. I hope so, because it's not like you're like a Mister Ben that leaves as an astronaut goes to work, and you're a cowboy. You know, it's that kind of um, especially. Like-
0: i I do i do think you're right i think look but my my hobby is my work as well
1: nice yeah So,
0: so like i love it like i talk about my work all the time i talk about analytics and programming and ai and contact centers and things like that and and so the blurring between home life and home life and work life for me happened like years and years and years ago and I Mm. felt as though like mentally like that's what I had to get myself into regardless Mm. so so the the last the last kind of 15 months has been quite natural for me I don't don't think it's changed so much I think the hardest part is not seeing people in the flesh and Mm. like when when you're a people person you kind of feed off energy and if you're in a room and you're doing presenting or pitching and stuff you can see people and you can see when they're like falling asleep or whether they're, the <laughs> they're energized. And you can kind of react to that it's kind of there's a dynamic between the presenter and the audience that you don't really get in this type of you know in, in terms of uh, in in terms of um uh, like the zoom the zoom calls and the teams calls and stuff like that but I always yeah I always kind of merge them together. Um, I do think it's kind of interesting though like you know some people do need the separation um, and some people, I think you've got to be mindful that not everybody like wants to work. <laughs> like, <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: Not everybody like loves it maybe as much as like I do or you do or some other people do. And some people want the separation between church and state, so to speak. And yeah. so yeah, I think finding that balance between like the 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 office the office working and the people who are always on versus the 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 people that are are, are there to are there to do a job, I think is important.
1: This kind of passion that you have and um work being your hobby is that is that always been there in your career where did this all start for you maybe just take us through this how have you got to where you are now so
0: i am an incredibly lazy person <laughs> super super lazy um, so i think i think growing up going through um going through school I, I think I had like, I've got some natural talents and I think, I, I don't think this is necessarily the case anymore, but I had like a relatively good memory. And so the, what, what that's good for when you're at school is like remembering like how mm. to calculate stuff and or remembering like bits of prose when it comes to, you know, your, your drama class or English and stuff. And so I think that got me so far. Um, but then when I got into my, my GCSEs and my A-levels, the re- the result of that was actually um, I didn't re- I wasn't really learning anything, like, yeah. And I, I I started to fall back because I am like naturally I am a lazy person. Um, I then went to university and I um, I learned how to do a lot. So I learned how to uh, go out like seven nights on the spin <laughs> drinking. Um, I learned how to manage my hangover better. <laughs> yeah.
1: this sounds like my experience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: I learned how to uh, lie to my landlord that the money was going to be paid the next month because <laughs> yeah. of I spent it on lucky So yeah, it was a it was a a lot of a lot of learning, a steep learning curve. Um, but but yeah, I, I really wasted three years at university just going out and enjoying myself. And I think my 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 mother and my and my and my nan and um, and some of my family were like, "What is he doing? Like, what's he doing with his life?" So I think these I'm an inherently lazy person, and so. What ha- what really happened for me is I did media and performing arts at uni, didn't get my, didn't get my degree. Um, I think I had I had I thought I had some talent for it and I started to do some uh, do some acting and, and do some stage work and uh, done a little bit of TV and then realised how absolutely rubbish I was <laughs> like compared to everybody else, like really, really bad like my ability to do like an accent is like zero (laughs) and and, and all of the kebabs and and started to put like a little bit of padding on my on my midriff and so yeah so even as in in my early 20s like I was starting to look a little bit out of shape and uh, I couldn't do anything what I was really good at was a stage fall so if I had to do some slapstick or something like that I was
1: like that's a that's uni. Come on, that's got to be hedge diving and stuff like that. Just exactly just make, makes you bulletproof, doesn't it? In the mosh pit, <laughs> yeah. So, um, so, so there was a lot of
0: that. And, and, and honestly, I think what happened was I had kind of a crisis in my mid twenties when I actually went. Can I swear? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Went, like,
0: Holy shit! Like I'm 26 years old. I'm like, I don't have a degree, I don't really have the GCSEs that I really wanted, I've got, my daughter, my daughter was on the way, and I was like, what am I actually going to do with my life? I was, I was um, working in bars and restaurants, like 60, 70 hours a week, I was playing poker online, which I was relatively okay at, but made a few, few hundred quid here or there, um, and I was like, I need to do something, and so I just had this moment, and I was like, right, I'm going to teach myself how to code, um, and I, within the first week, I knew that it would take me years and years and years to be any good at it. So I just set myself up with a goal that I wasn't going to think about time. I was just going to break everything down and just every single day I would code and every single day I would apply for jobs as an analyst just to get myself through it. And I think what that's taught me now is now we've got to you know, 12, 13 years worth of doing uh, analytics roles. What it's taught me is that I think it is all about incrementalism and like mindset and breaking everything down and just being super, super disciplined with yourself every single day. Because mm-hmm. now I look back now and like people invite me onto podcasts to talk about contact centers and analytics. And I just look back and just like, I know the thick end of F all, this stuff. <laughs> all I did was like, I got my head down, didn't think too far ahead and just incrementally like ground away. And a lot of people want things immediately now. They want things like straight away. And I'm I'm a, also like, I'm an impulsive person who wants things right away, most things as well. But what I was able to do with a very, very narrow part of my life was to just get my head down and just like chip away at it. And that's that's kind of how I am where I am.
1: How did you go from... Um, well, what was the... You went from a performing sort of... Being out there to code. What was it about code that made or can you talk through that? What was the were you always interested? Or um,
0: so it's quite
1: it's quite a complex kind of decision-making process, but it comes down to
0: this money. (laughs) 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 I thought to myself, um, how can I make more money? At that time in my life, like that was what was really important. Like I said, so I, I was probably on, I wasn't, pro, I wasn't anywhere near like even, I don't even think the minimum wage when you talk, take into account all the hours that I was working um, and um, I, I needed to support my family. So I, I, I genuinely, um, I looked at what was the programming language that generated the most amount of, um, of, of income. And that was, uh, that was SQL at the time and SAS which is a uh, statistical programming software and i gave myself the the task of learning sql which was kind of open and there was lots of resources and then finding a job that would teach me sas and um, so that's kind of the the fundamentals and that was the motivation i think like if i'm being straight i was always relatively good at like maths and things like that when mm. i was at when i was at um, school i'll tell a story that like my maths tutor didn't um, my maths teacher sorry uh, for from, from my class was at the top group for maths and didn't show up to classes because he had like had a bit of a meltdown and we were a terrible group of people at like a, a kind of a middle in school at the time but we were a rowdy bunch I think he just couldn't be bothered with us so we missed like weeks and weeks and weeks of, of lessons and so we couldn't ever do like I couldn't do the top the top paper for maths. So I ended up getting a B in my GCSEs, but I was lazy. So I was like, I'll just do stuff that was easy for me. So, and you, and you, you make these really, really important decisions. And you're like, yeah. When you're like 14 years old. So at 14, like yeah. you choose your GCSEs. It's like, insane. Crazy, yeah. it's crazy mate. Like, it
1: is insane.
0: Like, how, like no 14
1: year old should be allowed to decide no.
0: anything about the life. <laughs> yeah. I'm, not
1: being, I'm not being funny. At uni, at uni, When I first went there, they did this thing where they did, you went to do the degree that you'd chosen. So for me, it was psychology, but then you did two other subjects. I did sociology and politics. And at the end of the first um, two terms, I think it was, you took a small exam in the other two subjects that you hadn't ever done before. And if you're okay, you could switch. You could just completely switch. And I switched because politics gave me two weeks extra holiday and it had less lectures. (laughs) (laughs) And that was what I was 18. So you're right. It's like um, one of my daughters um, has just chosen their options. And when she's saying, what should I do? It's so difficult because you're like, I don't know what do you like doing. Um, But that's going to change. You're only you're only 14. So if I didn't know at 18, even when I left uni, I didn't know what I was going to do. And like you had children young and that kind of galvanized me to go yeah it's not just about me anymore i can't just bumble along because i was quite happy to bumble yeah (laughs) as well but you you've got this dichotomy that you're you say you're lazy but then you put in the work to code you put in the work to teach yourself through that even that incrementalism right which is you just show up just show up and keep practicing and keep getting better it's that, so it's
0: that, it's like, I remember, I, there's probably some things like, if I, if I was forced to look back and analyse like myself a little bit, because I am, I am like more interested in psychology and human behaviour and the science behind it and philosophy and stuff now, because I think, I think what I learned about data analytics, data science is, people who just focus solely on that get it wrong because they Mm. misunderstand the human condition. And I'm more interested in about, more interested in how you, you know, the psychology and how you nudge people to do certain things and and then reflecting and and looking at my journey and just showing up. That's an interesting just idea, like the concept of just showing up. And I remember I used to play cricket and football and for football, um, I used to love playing. All my friends played, but I never, I never made the first eleven ever. And a lot of the time, I was like an unused sub. My mum used to go absolutely nuts about it. <laughs> but <laughs> I just used to show up. Yeah, I loved, I loved doing it. Yeah. And I think for yeah for programming and data science, it was just that mentality that I wanted to enjoy it. I wanted, even though it was really difficult and complicated, I wasn't going to let that get me down. I was going to like enjoy the grind and enjoy getting into it, and just show up every day, like just just be present. And if you do that over time, you you all of a sudden you build up skills and just just be disciplined enough to
1: just just to show up. And it's an interesting concept. Love it. So you, if you got to take you back then, so did you get your first analytics role? And then carry. And did you even when you had that? Did you carry on teaching yourself outside of work as well?
0: Yeah, and I had to. So I, um, my first, my kind of first semi analytical role was for Vodafone. So I got transferred to a uh, and to an on site uh, an on site position working for a corporate client, and I started looking at like corporate spend and how much we were spending on Blackberries and. Um, uh and the mobile phone bills and things like that the 3g cards that you used to get. <laughs> yeah. and then then at that point I was like oh SAS programmers they make the most money so I'm going to uh, I'm going to apply for for SAS programming roles and I applied for I would say maybe 120 roles and wow. I did about 40 30 40 interviews and I, and everyone said no, 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 no. And then finally, like I got somebody who would give me uh, give me an opportunity, which was a guy called Chris Goulden at Freeman's Grattan. Um, and yeah, and then I, I started to learn SAS, and he he kind of taught me and and some guys in the team. And um, I still wasn't anywhere near good enough. So I used to I used to you know work a little bit later. I used to come in a little bit earlier. Um, just to get the skills and build my skills up. So I felt as though I was competent. And the, and the truth is, like, it, it took six or seven years and failure after failure after failure. And then just all of a sudden, it just clicks. And after all of the failure, you know, willing to fail, you've got on your T-shirt, mm. all of a sudden, um, you know, I did, I did SaaS programming and SQL, but I did it for marketing, pricing, credit risk, uh, customer behavior, capacity planning, forecasting, and I never ever felt like I knew anything. And then all of a sudden, probably about three years ago, just almost as when I was starting TMac, I felt like actually I am really, really competent now. <laughs> I'm aware of who I am, and, and and especially I know what I'm good at, and I know what I'm bad at
1: as well, which is important. And so that, um, what's the bit in between? So if TMac was three years ago what's the bit in between
0: yeah so i am um, so it was funny how i got into contact centers actually um it's quite interesting so i am um, I, I was working i was working in credit risk and i knew that that's not where i wanted to to necessarily be i wanted to at the time i was like oh, i want to work in marketing so then to work then went to work in I um, went to work in pricing, sorry, uh, did a bit of working for Tesco Bank. Um, it was funny, I worked in credit risk when it was the financial crisis, and I worked in pricing when there was the personal injury crisis. <laughs> and then I worked in digital digital transformation when yeah. it was going to be digitised. So maybe I'm like a bad penner.
1: Well, we're, we're very similar. I was in mortgages in 2008. So. Good <laughs> <laughs> <The> time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Great. Just got I just arrived in it as well. And they were like, why is everyone jumping out of windows? What's happening? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well and it was
0: it, it was a real I speak about I speak about that time around working in credit risk and stuff. It's so people don't understand, and like especially like younger people who work there, like you know, seeing your friends who work at like you know the Halifax Bank or something, who they've they've invested into shares and stuff and they see it just going down. It was a really, really strange time, but what was good was, um, I think I'm, I'm a good person in a crisis. So in a crisis, things have to change. There's a, yeah. force, a force, which is we have to change things. And that's, I like change. Mm. I'm really, really rubbish. When everything's like really, really like state stable, because nobody wants to change anything. Then they just want to sort of plod on, and yeah. I just get really frustrated and throw <laughs> my toys out my pram. So, so it was probably good that there's been all of this kind of change for me because it, it enabled me opportunities. So, so yeah, so I, I worked for banks and building societies, and then um, I was doing some market. I did. I, I worked in marketing effectiveness, um, but then I, I felt to myself, I want to give a I have a go contracting like kind of consulting and I took the first um the first consulting job that I could which was working in capacity planning for contact centers and I just loved it and I fell in love with it because it was the dynamic between you've got pricing you've got marketing you've got planning you've got people humans yeah yeah and the ecosystem around contact centres, like, it just kind of buzzed me. I just loved it. Yeah. Um, right, and, and that's when, and, and as well, like, I spent probably, again, three, three or four months understanding about um, about planning. I'll just tell you this. So a guy, I was, I was uh, sat next to a guy called Paul Pritchard at Direct Line Group, and he taught me about, you know, handling time, so um, A.H.T., yeah. Uh, demand and supply, and it was like how you how you, all of these things got into got into your your capacity plans or your your resource planning, and he taught me and taught me, and then and I kept doing it and I kept like reforecasting and doing insights and stuff, and he got, and he and at the end he was like, yeah, but none of it matters. <laughs> like, Why? It's because we've got a budget, and the budget's the budget, so it doesn't matter if you need six hundred guys. We've only yeah. got budget for five hundred and fifty, so tough tough look so I've done all of these on I'm like improve the forecast. Like I've got insights on the H. Yeah, it doesn't matter. This is the budget. So deal with it. Right. Okay. And then um, it was a little bit of a Misty, Mr. Miyagi moment. <laughs> I
1: love it. I, yeah. I, I, I I absolutely love it. We um just I know this is I know this is about you, but you just reminded me, I've got to tell you this one. So I was working in a, a contact center and we won the contract. Do you remember um one of the big gaming firms had a data breach. Yeah. So what they offered their gamers was, they just had to ring up, give their gamer ID, and they would get a ID protection service free for a, a year. Now we, So we, we were the uh, contact center that's gonna take those calls, provide that service. And um, I was in operations and they said, right, I need you to work with this guy from planning. Because we've got the deal, we're gonna but they need to move quick. We're gonna hire a hundred people go live next week and this is a deadline. it's got to happen. it's all exciting. We will work in like 12 hour days. But when it came to and like you say, a contact center is a microcosm right of everything is thrown in there in the arena. there's compliance, there's planning, there's pricing, ops, marketing, customer service product, it's all there and everyone was like right we needed to have a script. This needs to be in the script, this does, because it's a security breach, some of the compliance sections were were big. And they said, but we need it to be punchy because these are gamers. So it was me and this one other guy, and we just worked. And they said, right, you've we need to see the script because this was like two days before. Here's a script, we went through it. And it, I think it was the first time we role played it, it was a minute, right, a minute long. But that was both of us being really compliant, yeah. And which customers are not, of course. And they went, yeah, right. Little problem. This only works if the script is 16 seconds long. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> on, on, on this model, you have cost this company like $3 million. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: but it, it just shows sometimes though how thinking isn't joined up because we were like, there's no way you can do this in 16 seconds. I'd say well that's a deal we've agreed so yeah. well, <laughs> hello hello monkey 1982, here's your product goodbye
0: <laughs> but is but is that not like but that's where like i've started to be like way 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 more humble around data and data science and analytics and stuff because it can only it can only shape the conversation unfortunately like that that shape and that those probabilities that you'll come up with and stuff Meets reality, which is well. Unfortunately, this is what's going to happen. And I do think that you know, going through that process on cap planning, but also also other experiences, uh, it's just made me think like how much like data science, AI, all this type of stuff. It'll it'll take you so so far, but actually, like you, it's real humans and real decisions and and like harsh
1: realities really that you have to face in the, um to balance it out. I liked um, one of your adverts, actually. I know we're jumping around a bit, but it was around, and you could tell how you've brought this realism in because it was around when, you know, consultants come in and have, I think it was a snail with loads and loads of things on its back. Like loads and loads of ideas and then deliver them slowly. It's, that isn't realism. That isn't the realism of a contact centre. So if that example that I just gave, if we'd have got the meaningful data at the start of our, our involvement, we would have been able to help shape it, do something better rather than, than waste all that time. And I think the way you kind of talk, you have that realism in mind. Does that, is that one of the key things that makes the modular analytics company different for you? That you is that a big ethos of yours?
0: So yeah, I think, so I, I became a contractor young, like quite early in my career And I saw, uh, and and the module analytics company started off as a consultancy, and we're we're actually pivoting now, but the the consultant aspect of it came from this. Um, 80 to 90% of transformation projects fail, and they fail because they cost too much, and it's all top-down visionary stuff with no idea about how it actually gets implemented. So what you need is, you need like, you need a you need a surgeon. You need a surgeon. You need an operation. You need you need precise small cuts mm. to make it, to make uh, the operation work. But you don't. You have like this big visionary thing without any any idea how to how to deploy it. The second thing as well on that is, um, again, psychology. So if you employ a a consultancy, like. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to be, should I be careful? No, nah, I'm not going to be careful, right. The yeah. goal of a consultancy is to make money just like everybody mm. else. So if they could do something in three months or 24 months, what would they choose?
1: They choose exactly. to choose
0: 24 months.
1: Yeah.
0: They tried to load it with a load of project managers and senior people, and they charge people like me and you out at like £1,500 a day to just come in and just just fill space, you know? <laughs> yeah. And the the costs just like, just really 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 escalate, and then like what what then happens is because the costs escalate and the timeframes just expand, um, what happens is that um we have a we have a concept in TMAG and it's called oh shit, and oh shit is every single project like goes wrong at some point, and the trick and what happens with most projects is the oh shit moment comes when you've spent 500 to 750 grand and it's taken you six to nine months to actually get into it because you have just like, you know, you've, you've, you've looked at your navel, done some navel gazing, you've filled up some time, you've had some meetings and all of a sudden, like this goes by and you're like, now it's failed. Now <laughs> yeah. That's when you get into it. Now, if you, if you, if you do that, once you've already spent 500 to 750 grand, like one thing happens, it then becomes an emperor's new clothes. Yeah. So, because, you, because it's had really, really senior sponsorship. So it's like, this cannot fail. So even if it's a terrible <laughs> idea, like that was never going to work from the beginning, this project now will not fail. And yeah. it either becomes a zombie project where we go right. Well, if we drag it out long enough, people forget about it. Or we assign a load of it becomes like a vacuum where every single other good thing that was going on in your business has to be attributed to this project. So it's like, where can we find benefits? Like, yeah. we
1: Have we got a link to this over here? Yeah. <laughs>
0: Tenuous, links. Tenuous links. yeah, yeah. That's part of project text yeah. now. Yeah. <laughs> <part of> project... <laughs> and lobbing it in, and it becomes like, and it becomes like a, an absolute nightmare. Nightmare. whereas um just to get used to the benefits case whereas so so what we wanted to do was we wanted to just be uh, faster better and more affordable and to, to take the risk take some of the risk ourselves so we, we started off as an outcome-based uh consultant say um all of our all of our projects were delivered in a we were not an agile manner but we delivered them fast so within four weeks and um, because they were delivered in four weeks um uh we kept the cost down and we got the to the oh shit moment a lot quicker and then because um because we were faster and more affordable and um, what the net effect is of that is even if we only delivered 50% of the benefits of the bigger boys or, you know, 60%, 70%. We, we often say that we work on Pareto principle. We deliver yeah,
1: it love
0: the that. For, for 20% of the, the, the cost. But even if we deliver that, we're delivering a much, much, much bigger ROI. And that, yeah. types of things that we were doing. And, you know, we were doing them in Next Best Action. So upsell and cross-sell. We've done that in uh, in speech analytics. We've done it in coaching. Um, so, contact center coaching kind of solutions as well, um, but it's all about just being quicker, um, being more affordable, and then not trying to like over-engineer or or become a bit of a leech on the business. Tr- try and build build trust and lifetime value with our clients
1: over time. And that, um, what prompted you to set the company up? Was that? Um... Was that? Did that happen organically? Was it? Were you scared of doing it? What can you just talk us through that?
0: Yeah, I was insanely scared.
1: Like really? I'm,
0: yeah, I'm not a good like I'm not a good people manager. I'm not like I'm. You know, I've, you can speak to some guys who have who worked with me historically, and because I've been so, say, maniacally focused on me and like just improving bits, I've not always been like been. I mean, in fact, not always been. I've definitely not been the best like manager and stuff like that. I've always tried to when people are in are in the shit and you know when things aren't right, I think I've always been like empathetic and I put my hand around them and stuff like that. But you know, coaching and performance management, like it's just never, it's never really been my focus. Um, and so I'd had some i had some little businesses and stuff historically as well that hadn't gone well. And I'd kind of gone like, no, I'm just it's me. Like it's stuff that's something that I can control. I'll just be a consultant. Um, and then what happened was one of, my, um, um, one, one of my friends kind of said to me uh, one day who i had done some work with, he goes, Jimmy, like how come you can deliver like analytics projects like far, far quicker than anybody else? Like I give you, I give you some work to do and for everybody else it says that it's three months and you do it in two weeks. And I kind of said to them, well, I think everything's been done before and um, everything's modular and I just kind of do a little bit of an Ikea job where nothing, uh, every individual piece uh, is not unique to you, but how I rearrange them is unique to, the, to you. Um, so it's very, very quick and I'm, I'm I'm, a rubbish programmer. I'm not the best like mathematician or statistician um, and maybe I'm not the best people manager, but I think I'm... I'm a relatively strong like solution provider, and I can build a, an idea in my head very quickly about what somebody wants and where to hit the engine to get it running. And so, um, all it was about was like codifying that and giving and uh, giving a bit of a structure to it, which is what I worked on. So, so this this friend said to me, he said, "Um, you should write a book." So I started writing a book, and I was absolutely terrible because. <laughs> because i just don't care enough <laughs> um which was called the modular analytics cookbook and at the same time um the the co-founder of uh tmack sean northam um, he'd just gone contracting and he just started bugging me about us doing something together and doing um uh, and starting a company and doing this outcome-based stuff and um he'd be the face and I'd be the brains even though like I think I'm the face of the brains <laughs> <laughs> um, that type of thing and we um and and he just kept he, he's like a dog with a bone and he just kept, and I was like I'm rubbish at writing I'm more practical Sean's like super energetic about this we should start uh start a business and that's how the modular analytics company
1: was uh was born but then uh, did you but you'd had experience of. Um, setting up a business before or were you just like similar sort of thing did you just research it what did you um for, so because I've worked for
0: and then worked for about five years in contact centers I had a very very clear idea about what some of the challenges were mm. and I think we had a kind of in terms of modules we had about five modules and um, they had all subsets and components that went into it but Um, I think when we started, we had, um, so upsell, cross-sell within contact centers. I just didn't think anybody did it particularly well. Um, I think it was always people and personality and target driven rather than customer driven. I think that was one. One was around voice of the customer. So I didn't think, I thought that the voice of the customer um, uh, kind of, kind of uh, world was dominated by either a few big speech providers and i didn't think that their products were particularly great and then people who couldn't afford speech were doing surveys but the, the surveys aren't great either mm. but, so you're not getting a full picture so i wanted to do like something better when it came to voice of the customer um then we had one around people analytics um so I thought that there should be a systemic way of coaching people. And um, I saw a lot of a lot of uh, behaviours where um, team managers had spend an inordinate amount of time, like collecting data, to um, to to put together a one to one. And it's like that's not the value. Like their value should be getting the information and then and then relaying it and and then not speaking about the right things. So. You know, too much concentration on handling time too much concentration on a crappy nps metric that had just been kind of made up and, and got signed off at board level but you, you know was never going to be bollocks it. yeah it's, it's, bollo- it's bollocks mate and then and then but then not like not identifying like attrition so if you if you guy's an attrition risk like you should identify that and have a have a safe conversation with them So things like that so better frameworks for that and then then a couple of others like one around like improving your your, your forecasting and your cap, cap planning um and understanding the dynamics around it and then one around like you know kind of risk and compliance and things um and then over time we've kind of we've gone on a gone on a journey we, we delivered proof of concepts and did things around each one of those but over time we've just started to productize and uh, what we're doing and 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 now the, the capacity planning and the the more of the the kind of risk stuff we're doing less of and we've now we've now started to build uh three three products for for next best action uh, speech analytics and voice of the customer and um and uh, and
1: performance coaching on that coaching piece it's it's always been a real um area i like to focus on the work the company i work for now and things like that, but a genuine interest in coaching. Cause I think it, you ask a lot of team managers. We as an industry ask a lot and don't necessarily prepare them. And your point is really valid around, I could see people when I first became a contact center manager and had team leaders, I'd see team leaders wandering off with like a massive set of paper. i are you guys off to court? What are you, yeah. are you lawyers? What is that? I said it's all my prep for my formal coaching session and it was just such a waste of time you know where you're in this environment where time off the phone is golden that it's kind of like we've got time off the phone let's make the most out of it and then you just bore someone to death with the long-winded coaching session that doesn't actually make them better because i used to think it'd be good to get your view on coaching for me Coaching's a challenge when both the the person that's being coached and the coach can't necessarily, they're not being given the skills to jump over the mental hurdles that exist. Mm -hmm. So the reason someone doesn't do a particular thing, and sales is always easy to make these examples, right? If someone does an objection handle, it's because they don't want to. You can tell them how to say it, doesn't mean it. They just, when they get to that point of a conversation with a customer, something stops them. They don't want to be that person. That's that's a mental hurdle. And then you talk to someone about, okay, well, you do the coaching session, right, and now I listen to your next call and they objection them and you go, well done, brilliant. And then you go off and they, they, they don't change because they haven't, you haven't got to the, you haven't got to the why, you haven't really developed them as a person. Do you know what I mean? I'm rambling a bit, but it's... Oh, no.
0: No, so I, I completely agree. And like, there's a few, there's a few different principles. There's a few different principles there. So like, Number one, like, it's, it's better decisions faster. So how can we put better decisions in front of everybody's eyes? Mm. And I went on a bit of a journey. I started off doing stats. And then when, once I've done stats, I was like, right, how do I surface this to people, surface information? And we used to surface information in visualizations. Um, so I did a lot of Power BI, Tableau, things like that. Then I realized nobody understands them. Yeah. <laughs> like, even yeah. Though, like, for a bar
1: chart,
0: Some yeah, comes off the back of it. So if you go, like, your performance went from here and it's going up here and then it's going down there, most people just blank out and just go, not interested. So it's about, you've got to do like plain English. You've got to kind of go, like, your performance on convert on sales conversion was lower quartile. You know, your conversion was 10%, and the next quartile up was 15%. Like, you're 5% off this, and you need to concentrate on nailing this part of your script. So being very prescriptive yeah. about it yeah. so it's the prescriptive nature of the actions um, that you need to do. And, and, and therefore, you then go, well, how are these prescriptive actions being surfaced? You know, are they being surfaced through a human being? Well, if you've got a team leader doing it, you, how confident are you that your team leader is actually made? Yeah. So far better for the, the those prescriptive messages to come through an agent desktop or a specific coaching tool where you can then go, well, number one, have, have you as an agent logged into that platform to ha- actually look at your coaching actions. And number two, like ha- how long have you spent on that page where right it's giving you that action? It's almost, it's a bit like social media engagement mm. by, by turning the conversations into digital products. You can then track engagement just as you would do on Twitter or Facebook and things like that. What you then find is that your agent, first of all, it's about driving engagement with your agent base, like drive engagement into the tool. We've got a tool that makes you better, and it's very, very clear. And you could do this in Excel. You could do this in you can you know you can do it with them. Um, I've done it. Um, I've done it by creating sentences um, and conditional formatting and things um, in Excel. Even very, very simple stuff. Where this goes down, where this goes up, and stuff. Yeah. G- giving you this very, very simple tool. First things first. I just need you to log in. I need you to show up. Yeah, same thing, yeah. isn't it? So just show up. Then, when you show up, you can then see your actions. Now, now, are you your actions? Like, how long are you spending on that screen on your actions? And then it's this systemic approach where over time, it's not just once every week or once every month where you're having a coaching conversation. Every day you could be looking at your, your performance and getting better. Um, and, and there's an overarching thing here, which I'm, I'm super, super passionate about. So like we see, we're see we seeing um, digitization and people being moved to chatbots and stuff like that. And it's wrong it's wrong for it's wrong for customers like it's 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 eroding customer lifetime value because Mm. you get really really bad experiences by pushing people online but it's because we see we see the contact center as a cost that needs to be avoided and we don't see the benefits of of a a human talking to a human Mm. whereas whereas actually if we can make our humans better like contact centers who make their humans better will see huge, huge, huge improvements with their, with their customer lifetime value, with customer churn, with employee satisfaction. And it might mean that the employees are a bit, are a bit more under the pump because they they can't stay in (laughs) wrap. They've got to get out. You've got to, and they've got to hit the, they've got to hit their compliance um, scripts and the framing scripts and the sales scripts and the objection handle scripts, because rather than a per, one uh, a person monitoring it on a QA, it's always being monitored through the use of speech analytics. It might be a little bit more of an intense environment for humans, but I think for businesses, it's far, far more valuable, far, far, far more valuable, like humans, empathetic humans delivering next best action and decisions and improvements uh, improvements and, and improving themselves will get in far, far better than AI at the moment. and. It's better for the, those employees because we're not just going to automate the shit out of stuff. Which ultimately, like automation, it commoditizes your product. If all of your services is automated, then why would I be at Bank A versus Bank B versus Bank C? Well, I might as well just move around to who gives me the best price. And and I think it's it's bad for it's bad for everybody.
1: So um, I, I'm I'm
0: passionate about it. <laughs> I,
1: I, I'm signing up for this revolution. I want to be I want to be with you. I want to be with you on the front lines. I absolutely love that because we have made we we you mentioned this phrase before "emperor's new clothes." Right within the industry, we kid ourselves all the time that all of these CX experts, all of this, it's load of nonsense. Because when we become to be customers, we have to wade through the crystal mazes that we've set up for our customers out there. So. You know, if you've got something to do, so at the start of lockdown, we moved house and I just clear I booked days off because I knew I'd have a battle on my hands. Right, I've got to set up the internet, I've got to get the utilities, I'm going to go through, I'm going to beat the chatbot. Yeah, beat, beat the chatbot. First of all, finding it, try and find a number. You can't find a number. And I remember thinking, why hasn't anyone? And I know there are some companies out there that have done it, some brands are doing some really interesting things, So they've just gone because I think the involvement of our terminology will go, it's gone call center, contact center. I'm hoping it goes customer center. So we're the customer center network where take a call center, fill it full of people and pay them decently, train them well, and then just open them up to customers. Make it easy for customers to contact them without without making the customer climb a mountain, get to the top and go, right now you can speak to our guru. Just let them in. But
0: but do you not think as well, like, so what we've done is we've made contact centers worse. And then by making them worse, we've gone, oh, so we'll do a chat bot or we'll do or we'll do live chat because that's a better experience. Well, no, that's just because you made the contact center worse. <laughs> like, yeah. Don't don't make these words and then go, this is a better experience. like, you you didn't you should have made this better, made it the, the best thing possible. Exactly. Like, you know, a, a really interesting thing as well, a really interesting dynamic. I just don't think anybody tweaks about voice in particular. I'm gonna be careful because I might set up a load of like instruments and stuff here, but <laughs> but how many people have Alexa and use Siri and use Google Home and stuff now? Voice is voice is what's easy. As, yeah saying can you tell me this can you tell me that it's a far better experience actually for people like I'm, for certain things it's not like it, in fact I'm, I'm just going to go on a bit of a diatribe here like voice-led d is the bane of my existence <laughs> <laughs> Like, so you try to you try to take out a part of the conversation where I'm on a bus and I'm having to shout out my personal detail and stuff like that. <laughs> Well, let me change it like come on guys Anyway, but voice is voice is really popular now. Like my mum's
1: my mum's maiden name. <laughs>
0: yeah. Is that right? Nice? Yes, that's right. Just like, come on, guys. Yeah, everyone's staring at you. Um so but voices voice is huge. Voice is easier than typing. And so and we've got loads of voice-activated devices like that we're surrounded by now. Like voice when it's done correctly, and like when it's when it's a value. Is, is far better and and look we're trying to make, we're trying to like move demand to uh to to chat bots and to, to live chat or to async like i, I personally think asynchronous messaging asynchronous, asynchronous messaging is the best form like this should be messaging and voice that and that's it none in the middle because mm. i'm I only call, contact some uh, contact somewhere, not because I, I can't self serve. it's urgent, like I need yeah, do it now, so I need to get on the phone. I've got a small time period. I need to do it now. For everything else, like I've got all of the time in the world, and I can just send a WhatsApp or a Facebook message and stuff, stuff like that. So I think that, um, I think that the the voice you can see, you can see like the Amazons and the Googles and the Apples and stuff. They understand that voice is going to be huge. But in contact centres, we're still saying that we want people to type stuff up and, and even worse, like if
1: still people are using emails. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it, it defies belief, doesn't it? Yeah. But I think it's interesting because I, I can't remember what I was looking for, but I was doing some research and I found, I found an article and it was about uh, the prediction that um, voice in contact centres would go and it's coming, it's coming really soon because of technology. And as I was reading through it, I, thought, I wonder what the date of this is, went to the end of this, because it's quite an academic article, went to the end of it, and it was like 2004. And since, you know, from then, it's been, the, the end of voice has been predicted over and over and over again. But it's, and people link it to, like, different generations. This generation won't like voice. This generation won't like voice. But yet voice is still 60 70% of, of all customer contact. It's got to be for a reason.
0: It's 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 actually funny, like. And look, I'm you know I'm, I don't think I'm too old. old, old. I'm only just ten thirty nine, and like I'm like hyper hyper digital. Like i on you know all the all the social media platforms that I use and, and stuff like that. But I still believe in voice because it's easier. If if I could just ring somebody when I've got an urgent, com- slightly complicated request, nuanced request, and get that done. Then, then I do it. I don't try. I don't try and like do web chat or anything like that because it's it's a little bit complicated. And yeah, I think I think with the rise of um of yeah Alexa, Siri, Google Home, and, and voice activation, more people are more used to just shouting out like a simple request and getting an, an answer for it. And I think the next generation of that will be linking that into the contact centers and. Asking what your balance is or asking what your last five payments were, and then asking to be put through to a to an advisor. Um, and I think people should be more cognizant of that. See people who are trying to do in very, very like deep cuts to the contact center through through the use of automation and things, but not really understanding the dynamics about why what like why in in travel, like people will call. like it's because they're stuck somewhere or there's been delayed yeah. where it's time yep or or even or even things like an insurance where why would people want to call? Well if if they change something that that impacts their price, then they want to call to negotiate with you to try and do mm. a deal. And it's these types of dynamics that I think we often oversimplify the contact center and it's at our peril.
1: Well you mentioned something quite early on in this conversation around discounting the human element and emotions at your peril right because in the last two examples you gave the one thing that a voice can give people talking to a human can give people is trust so I, I challenge people if you book a holiday and you do your component parts, yeah so you might go here's my travel here's the flight here's the accommodation Airbnb blah 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 at some point you will want to speak to someone to get that trust because of all the things that have happened because of not just COVID, but volcanoes or whatever. And then in the, you know, in the other example that you gave from an insurance point of view, people do want to speak to a human that that, the element of customer trust is still, I think sometimes missing in anything other than voice.
0: There's there's also a thing as well, like, let's talk about the real bleeding edge of AI where, you know, we've, there is some ai now not generally because like general use ai that everybody uses right now that everybody's using the chat box and all this type of stuff is like rubbish it's only good for simple tasks um and and if a human when in a contact center is struggling because they're using like seven different screens and they're having to contact seven different places they're having to speak to team manager how's a chatbot gonna
1: <laughs> it's those <types. laughs> yeah
0: yeah but um but if we talk about the real bleeding edge, like where you could have a conversation with, with an AI, that's, people don't want that. It's mm. called it's called the uncanny valley. And people who who know that they're talking to a robot, or the robots being too human-like, it's a real turn for them.
1: Yeah. And
0: an actual study, you can have, go and have a look at it. And so, so right now I think, you know, and, and I don't even think it's the right thing to do yeah just just it's not it's not even morals or anything like that like if you're just talking like pure like money money value like get set you set your agents up for success like give them the right decision put the right decisions in the face and make sure that they data to them and the coach correctly and stuff Um, but but that's a hugely like better experience than trying to do all of this clever
1: stuff some of which like my company <laughs> <laughs> what what you mentioned something about kind of a slight change in direction for TMac. What? Where are you going? What's the What's the vision? So, so look, we started started off as a
0: as a consultancy, and we started you know prototyping and building products. And then I think the middle of last year, um, the middle of last year, we we just decided that we wanted to be become more a software as a service company. Um, I think that that wouldn't surprise people. I think that's where there's like a huge amount of growth and, and um, there's a huge amount of interest, especially in contact centres and, and and B2B. Um, but we felt that we had like, we, we felt that we'd, we'd earned our spurs for the stuff that we'd done. But, but also we, we felt like we could take the, the, the concept about driving value and, and and turn it into software as a service where at the minute, so many people aren't getting the value from the tools that they, mm. they, they have at their disposal. So, um, so we made that decision. We did, uh, we did a round of funding, which closed uh, probably about kind of December, January time. And, um, and we started to build our products. And now we've got all of our products um, uh, coming off the, coming off the assembly line. I think the most interesting one there as well is um, like we spoke about next best action, uh, like cross-selling, and upselling, and, and coaching. But I think, the most interesting one there was like speech analytics. So I've always had like an axe to grind about speech analytics. Like for every good speech analytics story, you've got like seventy-eight like ones where it's failed and it's been rubbish. And I think uh, like absolutely shit is one of the, the quotes that, <laughs> that, that that pops up. And so what me and the guys did, um, which sounds it sounds stupid, and like crazy and um and some of the investors that we've been speaking to is like how did you do that but we built our own speech transcription algorithm um and we trained it over the last kind of two years and um and we've now started to productize it and people go why have you done that well it's because like I don't won't name all of the names but you've got like the big providers charge an absolute fortune but then even the likes of Amazon and Google, you know, they're charging one like $1.40 per transcribed hour, which is a lot it's a lot of money for, for some yeah. people. Yeah. And yeah, by by building our own algorithm, um, we've done it for 80, 80% cheaper. Wow. So so and, and that's where because we own it as well, it wasn't to do with money or intellectual property or anything like that. It was because we now own it we can do shit for free, we can do free proof of concepts, we can test stuff, we can test some ideas, whereas the hurdle rate for testing stuff used to be, gonna have to pay someone 20 grand to like, to see if we can build a, I don't know, like a, a customer trust model, or a vulnerability model, whereas now we own it ourselves, we can do some more stuff, so I think it was a bit like, it was a bit accidental, um, how we got into it, but, um, it's meant that we, you know, we've got a product set now that, yeah, it's it kind of still hits those consultancy ethos things that we always wanted, which is faster, better, and more affordable. Um, but it's more SaaS product-led rather than consultancy-led.
1: And how you kind of portray yourselves out there in the world with the the visual imagery and the messaging? Um, I mean, I I I love it, but did, you, did was there much debate around that in terms of? how do we show up externally as a company? What is our, who are we? Do you know what I mean?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so, um, so I'm a little bit of a dictator when it comes to some stuff like this. And, um, I think, I think the branding, like, you know, we could talk about like the the core values and stuff like, you know, us being like, you know, proudly different. We talk about ourselves as being proudly different and, um, and like guys, as we're going through branding, going proudly different. That's a bit strange. Like, why would you say that? But it's because it's unique and because it sounds strange on your tongue doesn't mean that we shouldn't, shouldn't say it because that's how we are. We try, mm. we try and be different in our branding, the way we go about things, how we talk to people. Um, we try, we, we do try and be proudly different. When it comes to visual ima- imagery and stuff, um, we we wanted it to be kind of simple and about simple building blocks. And you can see that from the, from the branding and stuff. But when I first showed people the logo, like most people hated it. Like, but like, um, but most people don't have a clue about <laughs> this type of stuff as well. And I think like, I think the, the phrase is uh, a horse by committee is a camel. Yeah. Like if too many people's opinions, it just starts to cloud it. And what you generally end up with, if you take too many people's opinions, if you get uh, an all text logo with grey and a bit of blur, boom, and then you can see, you can kind of Google that and see all of them, and they all look like vaguely the same. So, so there was, so I think, I think we wanted to be kind of bold and have those bold primary colours. We wanted it to be about the building blocks, um, and then the kind of the, the proudly different element came in. And then I think looping back around to the start, I think what we always try and be is authentic. And I think the, the challenge that we are always have internally, and it's a good challenge to have is like, when are, we being off, when are we being authentic? And then where do we become unprofessional? And how do we like balance that line all of the time between um, the way in which we present ourselves, the way in which we talk about ourselves, And the way in which, like you know, our clients and the public perceivers, and I think that will always be a case. When when you're trying to push the push boundaries and push the envelope a little bit and do something different and engaging, I think you're going to, I think you're going to come up against those challenges. But I think authenticity is a big word, and it's something that we're always like, yeah. How do we balance off that authenticity against like making sure that we come across as as dependable, dependable and professional?
1: I love it. I bet the more people that said they disliked it. Made you strengthen your like a bit. I'm a very difficult man, <laughs> <laughs> so, so when I dig
0: my heels in. I'm, but look, it's um, but it's all to do with this backward reasoning. Like now, mm. the branding and the logo and everything about it works and people yeah. love it. But like, people would not have made those decisions um right at the beginning because it was you know it was too risky. Uh, it was too um. I think someone said it was too childish, but the whole point was it was supposed to be childish. It was supposed to be simple. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And but it's easy once it's easy once you're here to go. It's worked. <laughs> but um, but right back in the day, yeah, it was a it was a challenge.
1: Um, we're coming to the end. I'm conscious you're a very busy man. One of the I would just hopefully you want to come back because we've got other things that we could we could talk about. I love talking to you. Um, just want to end with what. Advice would you give to the version of you? Um, maybe just prior to that decision to, to code. Is there anything that you would, or maybe what advice would you give to people that are listening to this that are early to mid twenties? Um, could be in a contact center. Could be feeling. don't really know where they're where they're going. How did you? What advice would you give? I think. I think first of all.
0: I would say set yourself targets, set yourself goals, give yourself a big, give yourself a big vision that you want to go for and make the big vision almost a bit, a bit big and not scary but ambitious, be ambitious about it because you don't generally tend to try and hit in unambitious goals so give yourself something that's that's worth going for and then and then give yourself all of the little tasks that you need to do to get to that. I think that's what I'd say, first of all, and you can give yourself, you know, a, I gave myself kind of a, a five-year a five year goal to become competent in coding. And, to, you know, I think when I was 25, wanted to earn 30 grand by the time I was 30 and become a programmer, that kind of thing. And then I just broke down all of the tasks. So I think that's the first thing. I think the second thing is, like be very 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 patient like i can't stress enough how those that have patience ultimately like succeed um when you just rip stuff up all of the time and 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 throw it away and then rip it up and throw it away like you don't you don't make progress you've mm. got to you've got to believe in like incrementalism and show up every single mm. every single day um i think i think that's the Um, I think that's important. And then I think the final thing is, um, like, network. So, although I don't think I'm always the best kind of people person or people manager and stuff, I think understand that um, the way, really, you get to where you want to be, like, some of it's luck, some of it's patience, some of it's hard work, but quite a bit of it is always nepotism (laughs) and... (laughs) and it's and it's knowing knowing the right person who can help you along that way and what one thing that i always did was i always spoke to you know always put myself forward to speak to managers and senior managers and things i always um i always spoke to uh, so i always spoke to um um uh, recruiters so many people do not speak to recruiters But recruiters were like my lifeblood and so many of them have like put food on my table. Okay, they put food on their own. Yeah, that's the way it works, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And like speak to recruiters and give them time and like build rapport with these guys because these are the guys who get the jobs like Mm. first and build a network of people like that both you trust and they trust you and do good work for each other um and and become like a dependable cog in that in that network i think that's the that's kind of the final thing that i would
1: say i love that i um i found this really motivational jimmy thanks so much for doing it you even just listening to the number of um rejections you had today my 14 year old daughter contacted me she went for a summer job had the interview had done loads of prep was really jazzed about it she was really proud of going for it and she got she sent me the she got the rejection letter while she was at school today the email or message from they're doing it through Facebook um and I want her to listen to some of this because that kind of you know what you win or you learn you know there's no you know it feels like a loss but you'll be better prepared the next time you just keep going that kind of keep going because it's not presenteeism is it it's about it's about every day just engaging in something and just keep going and you will, you will get what you want if you keep going and you have those, those targets. I love it. It's been great, this has. Awesome. Yeah. Enjoy the grind. <laughs> Thanks very much, Jimmy. Awesome. Cheers. Thank you.